Well, good morning. Uh, if you guys have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 20 this morning. We're going to be, again, in the uh, end of your Bibles, Revelation chapter 20. Uh, as you guys turn there, let me uh, just remind you guys, as Keaton said, uh, again, we'd love for you guys to come on retreat with us. It'll be in two weeks. And so, again, if finances are any challenge uh, for you, uh, please come talk to us. We have scholarships available, and we count it a privilege to at least be able to come along and provide for you uh, so that you guys could be on retreat with us. Uh, just one of the sweetest times, I think, in our fall semester for our college ministry, a great chance just to get included and, and kind of get involved a little bit more with what What's going on here? And so we'd love for you to be a part of that retreat two weeks. Revelation chapter 20. Uh, we're going to be uh, this morning in verses 10 to 15. And so follow, follow along with me, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We pray with me. Father God, we come before you this morning, uh, just a hard topic, a heavy topic. Um, and Father, I pray, Father, I pray that you would just meet us in this morning. Uh, I pray uh, for so many of us that just love uh, upbeat, funny moments, whether in life or even at church. Lord, I pray this morning that it will look and feel different. Lord, I pray that you would meet us in it. I pray that you would give us boldness and courage to look at your scriptures just as they've detailed and explained. And I pray that you would give us wisdom as we walk through that time. I pray that you give us hearts that are open uh, and, and can respond to you. I pray as well that as we look at this topic, I pray you'd help us to understand it, uh, not just uh, intellectually for speculation, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to know what to do with it, how to feel about it, um, and how to respond to it, Lord. I pray that your spirit would in a unique way be with us this morning, Lord. And we ask for these things through your son and by your spirit. Amen. I've mentioned this uh, a few times to you guys uh, through the years, but I am probably a self-proclaimed recovering obsessive compulsive person, all right? Um, I've said this in different ways before, but uh, I had a phase in my life where I obsessively worried that maybe I had not put on deodorant in the morning, all right? And so uh, after that morning getting ready and application, I would throughout the morning uh, kind of do some smell checks, all right, all through the morning. Uh, and then I would hit a phase uh, at some point through there that I became so fearful that I was immune to the smell of my own deodorant that I would look for an outside person to verify for me. The privileges of marriage, right? Um, and then there was a phase through college that I really feared that I hadn't locked doors at our apartment or our house. And so I would get down the block away from our apartment or our house and I would double back, check back to make sure that sure enough, the doors were locked. And so they would be locked. They were always locked. And then I would take back off in my car and then I'd begin to fear that in double checking the door that maybe I had left it unlocked. All right. And so I would have to turn back around and go check on it, all right? And so, uh, in fact, my roommates kind of knew the, these qualities about me, and so they began to kind of play with me a little bit. Uh, I kind of like having everything in a certain spot, and so they would come into my bedroom where I had always put my books out on my desk and in my bookshelves just as I liked it, and they would kind of play a game with me. They'd move certain things, and they'd wait, and they would greet me at the door as I'd come home, and they'd walk me into my bedroom kind of talking casually, and they were playing a game because they'd all wagered, kind of curious as to how long it would take me to realize that something was out of place, all right? And I'd always, to this uh, day, amaze them as how quickly I would notice that something wasn't just as I wanted it. 
the fascinating thing about parenthood now with a little girl who's two years old, our little girl Caroline, is she's beginning to h- highlight and display certain qualities that she shares with her father, me. All right. So uh, as a two-year-old, this is the cleanest, freakiest child I've ever seen. All right. Uh, she constantly wants tissues. She constantly wants uh, napkins. She does not want to be dirty. If it were left up to herself, she would probably be potty trained by now because she does not like to be messy at all. All right. Uh, and the funny thing is watching uh, Marcy, who uh, doesn't just totally appreciate these qualities in me, seeing them in our own child and trying to figure out how to love her as she is, but ensure she doesn't turn out to be just like me, right? Kind of that, that weird, challenging balance, all right? Uh, really, for me, the, the hardest thing, though, of anything, though, is when I lose something, all right? I'm the guy that's got everything in its place, and so if something goes lost, it, is a, it breaks my whole system, all right? I rarely lose something, and so when I do lose something, it is frankly torture, all right? A few weeks ago, I lost my little clicker remote, all right, for the slides, and so the whole morning, I'm just trying to get through it, but I don't know where my slide clicker is, and I'm thinking all morning, where's my clicker? All night, where was my clicker? I found it the next day, and my heart was rested, all right? Uh, when I lose something, it's not just an inconvenience to me, it is torment. I think about it all the time, and it wrestles with me, all right? Um, some of you are here this morning and you got to ride it with a friend because you lost your keys and this morning you have zero idea where your keys are, all right? Uh, and you may be like me or that bothers you or you may be like uh, my wife and it's like, whatever, that's fine. I'll just get through life, right? Uh, some of you guys were able to call a friend, but some of y'all are thankful you had roommates this morning because not only have you lost your keys, but you also have no idea where your phone is, all right? Uh, you constantly lose things. It's, it's as if those things could have homing beacons on them. It would be really, really helpful, right? Uh, at least for me, uh, and I think for a lot of us, no matter how we respond to losing things, we all have to, kind of sense, get on with life, and we begin to adapt and find a new normal for things that were once essential to us that we've lost, and we mo- begin to move on and try to figure out how to live without. This morning, we're going to see, in a sense, I think, a topic and a doctrine that has just flat disappeared from the church. A topic that was once essential to life and to spiritual life and to the church, but is now flat gone and disappeared. A topic that was once essential, uh, was once talked about quite a bit. We no longer talk about it. And the topic of hell, what we're going to address this morning, some have said is an embarrassing artifact from an ancient age. Topic of hell, an embarrassing artifact from an ancient age. Many are relieved that we don't talk about it at all anymore. Let me ask you, when was the last time you heard a sermon on hell? When was the last time you even heard a sermon refer to hell? I've never preached a sermon on hell. All right. Uh, I'll tell you this morning, uh, as I've been walking through the last two weeks looking at this morning, uh, I've not really been looking forward to it at all. All right. Uh, This is a really, really hard topic that by and large in just about every church has just gone missing. I ran across a quote that I think kind of encapsulates this pretty well. Writer says, at some point in the 1960s, hell disappeared. No one could say for certain when this happened. First it was there, then it wasn't. Different people became aware of the disappearance of hell at different times. Some realized that they had been living for years as though hell did not exist without having actually consciously registered its disappearance. Others uh, realized that they had been behaving out of habit as though hell were still there, though in fact they had ceased to believe in its existence a long time ago. On the whole, the disappearance of hell was a great relief, though it brought new problems. I think Lodge's quote is right on. I think by and large, you and I live in a culture that the disappearance of hell has been a great relief. We don't like to talk about hard topics. (laughs) Uh, we don't like to talk about topics that are offensive or rude or challenging to our, our sensitivities or to our political correctness. And this topic comes right on head on. And frankly, which is why for me all week, I, I, I don't mind talking about hard issues or hard passages. But even for me this morning and this week has been a topic that I have just not wanted to get to and not wanted to talk through. Uh, and, and so in terms of your own expectations of a morning here at Southwood, if you've been attending for a while, uh, we've probably laughed for the last time this morning. <laughs> 
As we talk about the topic of hell, there's nothing to laugh about. There's no funny illustrations to come alongside this teaching moment this morning. Because it's not funny and it's not fun at all. In fact, if we're honest with what the scriptures say about hell, it is just flat terrifying. And so I, I think it's beyond time that we as a church address it and talk about it because our culture has actually recently begun to talk about it themselves. Uh, a topic that has really been historically silent lately, I feel like it's been becoming to be addressed. And if you'll remember back, even within the last year, when Osama bin Laden was killed, uh, former Arkansas governor Mike Huckabee tweeted, and I don't know why people tweet such serious comments in, in such short phrases, but welcome to hell, Osama. Um, hell has entered into the political conversation, has entered into our cultural conversation at large, even within the Christian circles. Rob Bell in his book, Love Wins, that I referred to a few weeks ago, brings up the topic of hell. And then many have begun to write in rebuttal to Bell's book, like Schaefer and like Piper. Uh, again, the topic of hell and heaven have re-entered into the discussion by and large, which is why we really wanted to spend part of this fall talking about these topics, and then ultimately later on this fall talking about the implications of heaven and hell for even life in the here and now, which is where we'll kind of get to coming in the next few weeks and for the rest of the semester. But the topic of hell, really where we're going to go head on this morning, what is it? Why does it exist? I think people are beginning to talk about it. Um, and I think by and large, I think it's a hugely important topic because what you and I believe about heaven and hell, I think actually is largely built on what you and I believe about God himself. And we kind of brought this up a few weeks ago, uh, but as the traditional understanding of heaven and hell has begun to be tweaked and to change, what we're finding is that people are changing the traditional view of God. That what you believe about God determines and informs and shapes and directs what you believe about heaven and hell and the vice versa works as well. What you believe about heaven and hell shows me everything about what you believe about God. And so the discussion is not about speculation this morning. What you and I have a grasp of what you and I believe about heaven and hell very much is determined by what you and I believe about God. And so I think it's incredibly fitting this morning that we spent some time even in worship uh, talking about and singing about the character qualities of God. Because it's going to be the character qualities of God that are very much under assault by our culture that has dismissed the notion, the topic, and the doctrine of hell. And it's been a relief to our culture to get it off the table, but in, by and large, what's happened, not just a silence to the topic, but gradually and subtly, they've begun to shift and to reshape who God is and who we're to understand God to be. And all of a sudden, the defining central characteristic qualities of who he is have become and fallen under assault. And so this topic is not speculation this morning. What you and I have a sense of, of what we believe about heaven and hell is very much determined by what we believe about God. And so we're going to look as we walk through this morning topic or point by point, we're going to come back to really what this implies and what this means for the very character and the nature of God as we walk through this morning. So that's kind of where we're going to go. Uh, Revelation chapter 20 really, to me, kind of sets us up to this topic as we kind of end our Bibles and begin to kind of discuss hell. Simply put, I think hell is just punishment. So we look through our scriptures, it's going to be absolutely clear that hell is seen as a result of the judgment of God. Hell is real, it exists, and it is a result of the judgment of God. And I think according to Revelation 20, according to our New Testament, what we're going to see is that hell is a just punishment for those who receive it. So what I want to do is kind of ask a series of questions to kind of unpack this for us. And first I'm going to start us off with, who will experience hell? Um, look with me back to Revelation chapter 20. What you're going to see is starting in verse 10, who are the first inhabitants and experiencers of hell? Verse, uh, verse 10 again. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. I think one of the first things I want you guys to see as we talk about hell, if you guys remember actually a couple weeks ago when we talked about heaven, we said that heaven was everything that you and I were created to, to experience and to, and to walk in. I'm thinking, I'm going to argue that hell is the exact opposite, that, and that hell is everything that you and I were created not to experience. 
In fact, hell was created, I think, by and large, as we look through the scriptures, for primarily the devil. Uh, the devil is going to be the first inhabitor of it. But notice who comes behind verses 11 and 15 describe a group of people who show up to a judgment in which God is the judge of. What we're going to see is it's going to be a group of people. Not all of humanity is going to be spoken of in verses 11 and 15. Uh, verses 11 and 15 kind of denote what we call the great white throne judgment. Notice verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. For those of us who are theologians, creativity is not a hallmark. It is not an attribute that we want to have. And so we're not really creative as we defer to these judgments. It's a judgment in front of a great right throne, all right? In fact, as you look through the scriptures, there's two different judgments throughout the New Testament that are spoken of. One is called the judgment seat of Christ, and the second is called the great white throne judgment. So we look, look through the details here. We're going to find that the great white throne judgment is also a judgment that people are judged according to their deeds, just like the judgment seat of Christ. The difference between these two judgments, though, are who shows up at these judgments. Particularly, we find if you look at back at verses 4 to 6, we're going to see that there's a different group of people who have already been resurrected. Look with me, verse 4, chapter 20. Kind of said a little bit of the context for us. John writes, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. John says, prior to this passage, prior to this judgment at the great white throne, there's a group of people that have already been resurrected. And this group of people, he says, are those who are holy and those who will reign with Jesus Christ. Those who will not experience the second death. And the contrasts are stark and obvious as we look at the next passage as we see those who are resurrected later. And it's a completely different group of people. Particularly, I think verses 4 and 6 are speaking of those who are believers who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who are the redeemed. They are resurrected first and united and have an opportunity to reign over the earth with Jesus. In the aftermath of that thousand-year kingdom that we call the millennial kingdom comes a second resurrection of a different group of people. And this different group of people comes and they come and find a different evaluation that we refer to as the great right throne. And the basis of their evaluation is deeds. We say over and over here every Sunday morning that you and I have eternal life as a free gift because God judges us not on the basis of our deeds, but on the basis of what Christ Jesus has done on our behalf. We are approved before God on the basis of faith. Yet it's interesting as we get here to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelations, we find judgment according to deeds. So what is going on here? Are you and I judge on the basis of our deeds and our merits? Or are you and I judge on the basis of our faith? Ultimately, I think what we find is that the answer is both. All right. You and I are all, whether we know Jesus Christ or not, will be judged on the basis of our deeds. Question is, which judgment do we show up at? And the different judgment that we show up at is determined by the presence or the absence of our faith. If we know Jesus Christ, we show up at a judgment state of Christ where he evaluates our lives, but it is not to determine heaven and hell. It is all there that will be at that judgment will receive heaven and all those who are resurrected later after the redeemed will show up at the great white throne and for all of them, they will be judged by their deeds. But notice the result of the judgment, verse 20 or chapter 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Notice that the inhabitants, the recipients of hell are going to be not just the devil, but all those who have rejected Jesus Christ. In fact, the question, though, is as we look at the end of Revelation is we have a fire here. We have hell here. The question is, how do we get here? Let's back up a bit to kind of figure out how in the world we got here. Why is hell, frankly, necessary at all? If it is a just punishment, why is it necessary? Even though maybe we can see who's going to experience it according to the scriptures, why is it necessary at all? 
I want to take you guys all the way back to the beginning of your Bibles, back to the, the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve fell in sin. They transgressed the command of God. And what was the result of that moment? As they transgressed the command of God, the result was that human sin brought divine judgment. God judged Adam and Eve, and the results of that judgment were death and destruction. They were, they were ushered quickly out of the garden. They were separated from God, and they eventually experienced physical death. Not just physical death, but even spiritual death as they were, in a sense, then alienated from God himself. The relationship they had with God himself was broken. What death is, whether it's physical or spiritual, is separation. Physically, our bodies will, will, will go back to the dust as a result of human sin. Human sin has always provoked the judgment of God. In fact, if you've been in main service, or if you're following along in the podcast at all, as we walk through the book of Romans, really uh, the second half of chapter 1 all the way to the first half of chapter 3 of the book of Romans is just depressing, right? Because one after another, one group after another, Paul is going to lay out and humble and say that we have all fallen short of the glorious, holy standard of God. There is not one who is righteous. There is not one who can stand on his own merits before God. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glorious standard of God's holiness. It is necessary because you and I have all sinned. In fact, Romans 6.23 will then say that the wages of sin, the just earning of sin is death. It wasn't just in the garden, it is for all of humanity that when humanity had sin enter into the world, so death also entered. Human sin always brings about divine judgment and divine judgment always brings about destruction. None of us stand on our own merits before God. All of us are absolutely broke before God because we are all absolutely sinful. Scriptures call it depravity. We call it the doctrine of depravity. We are all born dead in our sins according to Ephesians 2.1. None of us can stand before God. All of us are dead in our sins, in our nature. We are children of wrath. We are children of Satan. We are absolutely opposed to God. And yet, as we look through the world, as we look through societies and cultures, we would all argue some seem more righteous, more moral than others. In fact, what's fascinating as you walk through the book of Romans is that Paul will go from one spectrum to the other to say that you and I all fall to sin. There are those that are rampantly immoral, and then there are those that are uprightly moral. And even those that are uh, absolutely wicked and those that seemingly are trying to do the best they can and live moral lives, all of them fall to the standard of God's judgment. None of them live up. Whether it's the Jew or it's the Gentile, it doesn't matter your cultural ethnicity, it doesn't matter your generation, it doesn't matter how well you're trying to live, none of us appease God's standard. And so human sin always brings about divine judgment. And so we get a passage like 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 and 9 speaks so strongly. Notice what Paul says. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. What is hell? It is a place that is absolutely removed from the very presence of God. And it is a place where God pours out his wrath and his judgment upon those that have uh, fallen short of his standard. Hell is by and large just punishment for those that have forsaken God and have not found shelter under the refuge of his son, Jesus Christ. Well, why is it necessary? Why do we have to have punishment? I think what's fascinating as we look at our culture in our day and time, and even as we look at the scriptures, is that much of this language, much of this discussion centers around the image of a law court. So as you look through the book like Romans, really Paul is setting up basically a legal case against humanity. In a sense, humanity has been brought into the courthouse and humanity's crimes are just being listed. And there's no, uh, there's no defendant, there's no person that can stand apart from the crimes that have been listed. And so all are going to face a sentence in that law court. 
fascinating things you kind of walk through the book of Romans as you look at the law court as the scriptures unfolded is it's not just that humanity is all criminal and has sinned but their sin is actually not just against those that are around them but is primarily against God himself it is an offense to God himself so God stands not just as the judge who's determining sinfulness and crime but God also stands as the victim to the crime he's offended he's been hurt and so he stands there as that role and the question is what will God do in the courtroom Ultimately, how does God maintain his justice in that courtroom? What we see is that he rules humanity's sin to bring about judgment and destruction, and he shows his holiness and his wrath. The fascinating thing culturally, though, is that even within the law court system of our day and time, all of a sudden our definition and our sense of justice is shifting and changing. It's fascinating today. Uh, frankly, and, and rightfully so, because there's been all kinds of abuses and injustice in the criminal courtroom and in prisons. And so, uh, by and large, we're seeing a real shift to the rights of, of an inmate or the rights of a criminal. And I'm not saying that that's not right. All right. But what's beginning to shift and what's begun to be real subtle is that all of a sudden we're beginning to redefine justice. Justice cannot be punishment according to our culture. If there's a justice that's punishing, it is inhumane. That's what our culture has begun to shift us to. In fact, what justice must be and what a sentence within a law court must do is it must be rehabilitative and must be corrective so that future occasions are not going to occur of crime. And so really what we begin to see even in our law court today is a shift really to not toward the punishment of past crimes, but toward the prevention and the rehabilitation so that future crimes are not committed. The sense of justice is radically beginning to shift and it seems subtle, but it's impacting even how we see God's wrath and judgment in our scriptures. In fact, let me give you guys a quote of this. The writer says this, The disbelief in the existence of retributive justice, meaning justice that punishes for a wrongdoing, with a crime, with a fee, with a sentence, is now so widely spread that it causes even men to look upon God as vindictive, a lawless autocrat, and to stigmatize as cruel and heathenish the belief that criminal law is bound to contemplate and punishment other ends besides the improvement of the offender himself and the deterring of others. Did you guys catch that? Here's the, here's the cultural shift by and large today within law courts. Punishments cannot be at all, uh, in a sense, painful or, or retributive. They have to be rehabilitative. They're no longer concerned with a, a crime being righted or being punished for in the past and a fee being exacted, but what they're concerned with is that this criminal would be rehabilitated so that we don't have future occurrences. And a shift of justice is occurring such that as we look at hell, the great question has really arisen as to what kind of God would punish sin? What kind of God would punish sin eternally with destruction? The great question is, is God just? Because our definition of justice is shifting and all of a sudden really the question of hell that's been dismissed and that's now being debated is not really does hell exist and is it a just punishment? But really the main question at, at hand is really is God is on trial and the question is, is he just? If, he, if hell is a place of just punishment, then God is not just, is what our, our culture would say. And I think ultimately what we've begun to do and what we miss is the fact that you and I have to define sin and we have to define justice, not as our culture is shifting and constantly shifting and defining things, but as God has defined it. In fact, as we look through the scriptures, there's absolutely no way to get away from the fact that the Greek word for punish means punish. It is retributive. It is not rehabilitative. It is a word that denotes pain and cost that comes as a consequence of wrongdoing. Uh, you cannot look through the scriptures and, and, and dismiss the wrath, the anger of God against sin. And so really what's begun to happen is the question is, is God just at all or is he evil and cruel for what he does? In fact, as we kind of walk through that, let me challenge us that as we look at sin, as we look at justice, we have to define it as God defines it. 
by and large, I think when we begin to redefine justice and we begin to move hell away from punishment, what we've really begun to do is say that our sin isn't that bad. But I'm quite good at that on a daily basis. Uh, God doesn't really have that much wrong with me. There's not that much really he needs to still restore or fix in me. I'm really not that unrighteous. I'm really not that evil and opposed to him. And even as a guy who's been walking with the Lord for a long time, the longer I walk with him, the more I realize how evil some of my desires are and how bent some of my heart is. And the closer I get and the longer I walk, the more I realize how wretched I am and how much I still need him to redeem me. You know, we have a culture of self-justification, of, of patting ourselves on the back to get away from the fact that we are wretched and that we are sinful. That doesn't go well on a Hallmark card. That's not what we want to hear. And if we can get away from our sin, if we can minimize it, then we also can minimize how angry God is at it. And then we can minimize the punishment that he has to exact on it. And ultimately, as we begin to talk about hell, really what we're beginning to talk about is the nature of human depravity and the nature of the justice of God. Human sin provokes divine judgment, and divine judgment always leads to destruction. It is a kindling of wrath and anger that comes to destroy, and it is retributive. And the only way to get out of it is with a shelter that Jesus Christ provides us. And we'll talk about that even more as we go. And yet I think the justice of God, uh, frankly, is a tension that we feel when we talk about hell. And it gets even more tense, even for me personally, as we look at the fact that hell is not just, just punishment, but it is also eternal torment. Hell isn't just a just punishment, but it is also eternal torment. There's no way you can get away from this if you look at the scriptures and are honest. Let me just throw you a few verses that highlight this. Mark chapter 9, verse 43. To go into hell, into the unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Mark chapter 9, Jesus speaks of hell and he says that it is a place of unquenchable fire. It is a place where the worm does not die. Even more uh, terrifying comes Revelation chapter 14 uh, when we find this. Uh, he also will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Revelations 14 is just terrifying. I don't, I don't know how you look at a passage like that and argue that hell is not an internal experience that is actually conscious. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Revelation 20, verse 10, we already read this. Speaking of the devil, the beast, and the false prophet, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hell, as the scriptures unfolded, is an unending experience. Uh, frankly, I think because of cultural sensitivities, even evangelical preachers and teachers have, have begun to refashion along with our culture and repopularize the view of annihilationism. So maybe hell is a, is a real place, but many will begin to argue that, that in a sense, uh, God's fire and his wrath is kindled on someone and then they are just destroyed and their existence is no more. As hard of a topic and idea that is, that frankly, it is easier to swallow that idea than really what the scriptures are saying, which is hell is a place of torment that is unending forever and ever. It is not a fire that is quenched and gone, but it is a fire that is unquenched because its target is not consumed. It is unrelenting and unending. It is incredibly difficult to teach this and to talk about it, um, and yet here we are. Honestly, I think as we kind of walk through, uh, I, I think many will have argued that it is unending. I don't know how you get that from the scriptures, but I want to kind of move away from the concept of duration and just talk about the fact that however long it's going to exist, it is absolutely awful. My stomach has churned all week realizing the passages we're looking at, realizing the topic we're going to wrestle with. Um, hell is awful. It, it is absolutely terrifying. Um, in fact, we, as we look through the scriptures, you get metaphor after metaphor of what hell is going to be like. We have fire, we have pain, we have darkness, we have anguish, uh, we have torment, we have wailing uh, and gnashing of teeth. Uh, the imagery is just awful. 
Uh, and yet the question is, are the imagery denoting something that is real or something that is unreal? Um, Charles Spurgeon says, and this is incredibly strong, but he says this. Now do not begin to tell me that this is a metaphorical fire. Who cares for that? If a man were to threaten to give me a metaphorical blow on the head, I should care very little about it. He would be welcome to give me as many as he pleased. And what say the wicked? We do not care about metaphorical fires, but they are real, sir. There's a real fire in hell, a fire exactly like that which we have on earth and everything except this, that it will not consume, though it will torture you. Spurgeon comes off real strong. And I think whether the metaphors are real or not, the purpose of the metaphor is to point to a reality that is even worse than the metaphor. We talked about this a little bit two weeks ago when we talked about heaven. Uh, Even heaven has all kinds of metaphors, not that heaven therefore is fantasy and doesn't exist, but the metaphors are pointing us in a trajectory and along the line so that we realize that something even better is past the metaphor. But the metaphor helps shape for us to understand what might be coming past the metaphor along that same trajectory. And I think the metaphors of hell do the same thing. They point us along a trajectory of what we could experience and what we could uh, expect to occur. And yet the reality that is beyond the metaphor is far worse than the metaphor itself. And so as awful and as terrifying as some of these metaphors are in some of these passages, the reality of hell is something that is even far worse than that that awaits. And so it naturally leads to the question again, what kind of God would punish this way? Um, This is why my stomach's been churning because frankly, even as I wrestle with it, I don't know how you have any sensitivity and don't have a hard time swallowing the biblical data here. That hell is a just punishment for those that have not not received Jesus Christ and it will be a place of unending torment. I don't know how you swallow that with any kind of um, sensitivity without struggling. In fact, uh, one writer said this, unending torment speaks to me of sadism, not justice. It is a doctrine which I do not know how to preach without negating the loveliness and the glory of God. It has been an emphasis of fanatics. It is a doctrine that makes the Inquisition look reasonable. And it all seems a flight from reality and common sense. I think that quote, frankly, I think hits many of us, hits me. Uh, I'm going to go a different direction from it because ultimately my feelings don't determine what I think to be true. But I think I have to let the scriptures do that. Even as I look at the scriptures, I think the data seems clear. I don't know how you move away from the reality that it looks like hell is going to be just punishment and a place of unending torment for those that have not received Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. The great question that it comes is not just really is hell a thing to be speculated, but the question really comes back to the nature of the character of God. First, is he just? And secondly, is he loving? What kind of God would do this kind of thing? What kind of God would love and would he be loving and all to allow some to experience a just punishment of unrelenting, unending torment? How do you swallow that? How do you teach that? How do you still offer up the love of God? I think even under the assault of God's justice, I think God's punishment shows and highlights and maintains his justice. And I'd argue, even looking at the fact that hell is unrelenting torment, I think what we see also is, is not that it is a, a, a thing that mirrors and obscures the love of God, but I think actually what we find as we look at the fact that hell is an avoidable reality, that we actually find that God is loving. <laughs> and that as we find that hell is, is not something that we have to experience, but it's something that he's provided means so that we do not have to experience, we find the love of God put on display. And really, I would argue, by and large, as we look at our culture and what a lot of people are doing is they have so dismissed the holiness and the justice of God, and they've so elevated the love of God that really the love of God isn't really true at all as to who God is. God has to love in a way that still maintains his justice. And for his love to cover up over his his, uh, justice really ends up meaning that he's not just at all. 
If a judge was to excuse someone who's committed a crime because that person was his son, then that judge is not just and righteous at all. Just because he loves us does not mean that he can look the other way at sin and that which brings and stirs his wrath, his anger, and his judgment. He has to uphold his justice, but he also is loving. And so he's provided a means to not just uphold his justice, but he's also provided a means to show and highlight his love. And we find that in the person of Jesus Christ. I think as we look at the topic of hell, really, as we look at a topic that frankly is probably one of the hardest that I think I've ever had to take a look at and talk on, it is a topic that I want to end us in seeing that even as difficult it is to look at as the scriptures describe it, it is also something that is avoidable. And so we can see even in its avoidability that God is loving. In fact, discipline and judgment is not counterintuitive and is not, it's not irreconcilable with love. I think for many of us, we've seen parents that are loving, but they have no justice. And so they let everything slide. We have some parents that are just based, but they're not loving. And so they, they beat us down with what, how and, way, and, and the ways that we fail. And yet God is both just and he's loving. And so he's going to find a way to merge those. And I think by and large, so many that have dismissed the doctrine of hell as we understood it traditionally have also retweaked the love and the justice of God such that we end up with someone who is not God as, as he's revealed himself through the scriptures. But as we look particularly at Jesus Christ, what we find is even more uh, is those, the justice and the love of God meet perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ, specifically in the death of Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the most famous verses comes John chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, athletes wear it on their little shadow things. It's everywhere. It's quoted. It's in stands. Um, and yet, as much as it's quoted, I, I, I've never actually quoted it up on a sermon. And I thought it couldn't be more appropriate for our morning. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I think as we see how absolutely horrific and horrible hell is, we see even more greatly how loving God was to spare no expense, even the expense of his own son, Jesus Christ, so that we could have life. Hell is an avoidable reality, but not all paths lead to the same place. Not all paths and all religions lead to heaven. In fact, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the truth, the way, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Acts chapter 2 will say, There is no other name found under heaven by which men must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. God has provided a means to satisfy his wrath and to highlight his love, and it is in the person of Jesus Christ. And apart from Jesus Christ, you and I have no shelter from the wrath of God because Jesus, in his death, took upon himself the payment for sin that was ours, and he took upon himself our death. He died in our place so that we would not have to. He took the wrath and the judgment of God upon himself on a cross so that we would not have to. And he could die for us because he was absolutely innocent and as divine, he can stand as a substitute for all of humanity. And so for us uh, who have never trusted in Jesus Christ, let me challenge you to consider Jesus. Despite what culture, despite what media says, there's no means apart from and away from the wrath of God and the destination of hell other than Jesus Christ. And even in Jesus Christ, we find a place and a person in which we see that God has displayed his wrath and his justice because he's punished sin in his son, Jesus Christ. But we also find a nature of his love because at the cross, we find his justice and his love meet perfectly. At the cross, we see just how greatly he loved us by the fact that he gave his son, even despite how greatly we offended him. It is in his son, Jesus Christ, that we see his justice and his love maintained and brought together in a way that no other religion can. Apart from Jesus Christ, you and I have no shelter from the wrath of God. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, let me plead with you in light of the reality of a hell that is waiting. There is no shelter from your works. There is no shelter from religion. The only shelter that is available is in Jesus Christ. 
So if you have questions this morning about Jesus Christ, if you have questions even about this topic of hell, come grab me this morning. Please come talk with me. Um, my heart hangs heavy in light of this reality. In fact, that's where I want to move us who do know Jesus Christ this morning. Uh, I want to challenge you to check your compassions. Uh, I was thinking for me as I've been wrestling on this topic for two weeks, uh, really the thing the Lord did for me is he came right down in the middle and just started poking on my heart and asking me the question of how compassionate are you? Why does your heart not break for those who are looking at this reality and who are on a path to this place of destruction? Why does your heart not break? Why does it not break enough? Um, particularly I was thinking of even you college students and last night we were at a concert fundraiser for uh, a group called uh, Living Water that is trying to get water uh, in Rwanda for people who don't have uh, water that's drinkable and, and, and as I watch you guys for the years I find colleges in particular especially your generation are quick to compassion when it comes to issues of social justice so if someone doesn't have living water we're going to go for go coffee and sodas and we're going to give and we're going to be sacrificial and our hearts move quickly to help um, the last few years, um, I've heard a lot of people, a lot of you girls whose hearts have been just real struck by the topic of sexual exploitation in places like India, sex slavery, uh, hearts that are just compassionate and broken and want to do something about it. And let me commend you, that is amazing. And yet what I find in a lot of y'all, what I find also in myself is despite our compassion in those arenas and for those purposes, I think for some of us, when it comes to the reality that a well and and a a torment that is awaiting some for all of eternity and a destiny that awaits some doesn't break our heart at all. And for some reason, our hearts can drift to issues of social justice, but we cannot and they don't drift to issues of eternal destiny. Why is that? Is it because we don't think that this is a real thing that awaits and we've excused it, therefore we weren't just uh, unclear about it intellectually, but we didn't know how to feel about it and so we weren't responsive to it? I think for me that's the case. I think in light of my own compassion, I'm not quick to share my faith. <laughs> in light of my lack of compassion, I'm not quick to walk across the street. I'm not w- quick to walk across a room. I'm not quick to engage in that awkward moment with a family member and to bring up this issue of a reality that awaits that is real and that is horrifying. And if it is real and it is horrifying, then why is my heart so unmoved for those that are looking straight at this potentially? And why am I doing so very little? Um, I'm not wanting to at all guilt you guys. I I, I do want to challenge you, at least for me personally, this is where I landed this week, which was, man, I've got some growing to do in this arena. And if this issue coming in the future is real, then my heart has got to catch up with this because it's so much to handle. It's so difficult to grasp. My heart doesn't know what to do in some regards. And, and my heart for you guys is that you guys would be able to pull away, that you'd spend some time looking at some of these passages and, and allowing the Lord to come and to move in your own heart. Uh, allowing the Lord to come and move, uh, maybe for even for some people in your life, that you realize, man, God has put me for a unique time in a unique place with a unique set of people, and, and I have an opportunity and a responsibility to, to step up and to speak out. You and I have a message that can allow people to escape the wrath of God that is coming, and it is the only message that allows that. It is only in Jesus Christ that forgiveness and eternal life can be found. And you and I have that hope. We have that message. We have that gospel or that good news. And yet, why are our hearts not so moved? And why are we so slow to stand up and to speak up sometimes? That's where I landed. I think for some of us, we, we are slow because we're awkward or we're afraid. I, I think for some of us, we're not sure what to say. And so one of the things I wanted to kind of end with, just one practical opportunity, is every Friday we go out on campus, 12 to 3, we meet every hour on the hour at the steps of Evans Library, and we go out on campus and we share this message. Um, I know uh, for some that idea of confrontational is is really uh, 
terrifying. Um, but let me also challenge you that I think it's a great chance even just to learn to share your faith. We go out in pairs, and so if you've never shared your faith before, if you want to find out and be challenged in, in terms of how to share your faith, come talk to us. We even did a training just last Thursday night uh, as to how to share your faith. And so if you're not sure how to your, share your faith, I mean, please come talk to us. We would love to spend some time and love to help get you there. Uh, if you're in a Bible study, ask your Bible study leader. If you want to come ask us on staff, we'd love to, or come with us on Friday afternoons, and we're going to partner up. And that's part of what we're doing is helping train people how to share their faith. Great spot to do that. It's where I did it as a junior and senior in college. It was going on on campus, sharing my faith with people, learning how to share, learning what to say, learning how to engage with compassion and with courage as well. And so let me challenge you to spend some time. Uh, this is a really hard topic. Don't let it pass. Don't, don't push it away because it's hard. Spend some time at some of these passages and let the Lord uh, speak to you in them. Uh, if you have some questions and want to come talk to me, come grab me afterwards. I would love to talk. Um, allow the Lord to kind of spend some time, not just... Uh, intellectually as to what you think, but even emotionally, and then how that leads to your own volition and your will as to how you're going to respond. As a little bit of a preview of where we're going to go next week, if the idea of the gospel is the one message that can bring eternal life and forgiveness for those that, apart from it, have no shelter from the wrath of God, then the question really comes, as some of y'all have asked, even as we've been in the series already, what about those who've never heard? If the gospel of good news is that which brings uh, forgiveness of sins and eternal life for those to escape the wrath of God, what about those who've never heard this message? What about those who've never heard the good news? What do we do with them? What about babies who die prematurely? What about the, the African tribesman who's out in a field somewhere and never has a Bible in his language and never heard the gospel? What about them? What does God do? Uh, That's where we're going to kind of go next week as we kind of wrestle with a larger question too of is it fair uh, that God would judge in this kind of way and particularly what about those who have never heard? That's kind of where we're going to go next week. So let me pray for us and then uh, we'll break. Father God, we come before you honestly with a topic this morning that is too much to process, that is uh, not just difficult intellectually, but even as we grasp um, concepts, Lord, it's difficult for it to filter into our hearts and for us to know what to do with it. And not just how to feel about it, but to know how to handle it, um, to know what it means of who you are. Father, I pray that you would give us courage to look at your scriptures and to see you as you reveal yourself to be. I pray in the midst of cultural emphasis and voices and, and the things that lead to sensitivities, Lord, I pray that you'd give us the courage to kind of see and to wrestle with you and, and to not have to repackage you for culture in a way that would make you more digestible. Father, you are not just loving, but that you are holy. You're not just loving and that you would call us and we come quickly running into your arms, but you're also holy that causes us pause to consider that we can't come rushing in, um, that you are holy, that you are just, that you are set apart, and that you have a standard that you must maintain. And Father, I pray for those of us who have not trusted in the forgiveness of sins through the death of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would find shelter from your wrath and your judgment in the person of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would break our confidence in our own works and in the merits of our own life. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to look even at religions and see that in Christianity, um, it is set apart even from every other religion that says that we cannot earn your merit, we cannot earn your approval, that you have to provide that on our behalf, and you've done that in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that for those of you who never trusted in you this morning, Lord, I pray that you'd allow us to find life today in you. Maybe for the first time we could pray and we could ask you to enter in our lives, recognizing that we're sinful, recognizing that we need a savior and that you have paid our penalty so that we would not have to face destruction and torment. And even more particularly that we would not have to spend all of eternity apart from your presence. And so father, I pray for some of us this morning, Lord, I pray that today could be the day that we enter into a relationship with you, maybe for the first time. For those of us who've already entered into that relationship, Lord, even as we wrestle with this topic, Lord, I pray that you would help us to know how to feel about it. You'd help us to know how to respond to it. Pray that you would make us compassionate people, 
and that even as we declare a message that is set apart from every other religion, Lord, I pray that you'd allow us to com- proclaim it with not just courage, but with compassion and with kindness, and that we would represent you uh, and your love even in the way that we speak it. Father, I pray that you would grow us, that you would move us, that you would give us some time, even this afternoon and this week, to really examine our hearts and to really allow us to have a moment of truth before you. Father, may you pull us away, may you pull us aside, and may you do business with us, Lord. And I pray that you would allow us to be compassionate, urgent uh, men and women, ambassadors of a message of good news. That we would be a church that's not just uh, vocal on social issues, but be vocal on eternal destinies. That we could combine social justice with evangelism in a way that is so attractive to the world. Uh, that we wouldn't be just so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, but we wouldn't be so earthly minded that we're not uh, cognizant of heaven and the realities that are to come. Father, help us merge those together in a way that would be winsome and bold to a culture that's around us, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Guys, thanks for coming here this morning, and we'll see you guys next week. You guys have a great weekend.